You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Hi. My name is Now, and I'm a time being. Do you know what a time being is? Well, if you give me a moment, I will tell you. A time being is someone who lives in time, and that means you and me and every one of us who is or was or ever will be. As for me, right now, I'm sitting in a French maid cafe in Akiba Electricity Town, listening to a sad chanson that's playing sometime in your past, which is also my present, writing this and wondering about you somewhere in my future. And if you're reading this, then maybe by now you're wondering about me, too. You wonder about me. I wonder about you. Who are you, and what are you doing? Are you in a New York subway car hanging from a strap or soaking in your hot tub in Sunnyvale? Are you sunbathing on a sandy beach in Phuket or having your toenails buffed in Abu Dhabi? Are you a male or a female or somewhere in between? Is your girlfriend cooking you a yummy dinner, or are you eating cold Chinese noodles from a box? Are you curled up with your back turned coldly towards your snoring wife, or are you eagerly waiting for your beautiful lover to finish his bath so you can make passionate love to him? Do you have a cat, and is she sitting on your lap? Does her forehead smell like cedar trees and fresh sweet air? Actually, It doesn't matter very much, because by the time you read this, everything will be different, and you will be nowhere in particular, flipping idly through the pages of this book, which happens to be the diary of my last days on earth, wondering if you should keep on reading. And if you decide not to read any more, hey, no problem, because you're not the one I was waiting for anyway. But if you do decide to read on, then guess what? You're my kind of time being, and together we'll make magic. Ruth Ozeki is a writer, filmmaker, and a Zen Buddhist priest. She's the author of the books My Year of Meats and All Over Creation. Her new novel is A Tale for the Time Being. Thank you for joining me, Ruth. Oh, thank you, Rick. This is such a wonderful novel, and it's such an interesting version of the science fiction novel. <laughs> and I, I, what I like about it is that we often think of science fiction as being futuristic fiction. But it can simply be a novel that discusses science, too, as part and does a little bit of fictionalizing. And I think that's what you do with this novel. But first, you enchant us with this wonderful (laughs) voice of now. So talk about discovering that voice. Well, first of all, I love that you're talking about this as a science fiction novel because, of course, I, I, I see that, too, and I very much enjoyed that part of the book, but nobody has mentioned that yet. And so I'm just delighted that, you're, that you've picked this and you're, you know, you, you're, you've recognized this. So thank you for that. The, the voice of now is really, uh, you know, that was the first thing that came to me, and that was back in 2006. And her voice just kind of popped into my head, and I heard her saying, pretty much exactly what it constitutes the beginning of the book now. She just announced herself. Hi, my name is Now, and I'm a time being. Do you know what a time being is? Well, if you give me a moment, I'll tell you. And so I knew at that moment when I heard that, and I wrote it down, I typed it up, I knew that she was about somewhere between 14 and 16 years old. I knew that she was a Japanese schoolgirl, but I 
She was writing in English for some reason. I knew that she was writing. She wasn't just speaking these words. She was writing them. I knew she was writing a diary. And I knew that she was writing this diary to somebody, but she didn't know who that person was yet. Right? So she, she had an idea that, this, that these words were meant for somebody out there in the world, but she didn't know who it was yet. Well, that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this book is the way it explores and to a degree explodes the relationship between the writer and the reader. As a reader, there are some moments in this book that are purely magical that could only happen as part of the reading experience. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about your experience of the reading experience, your experience of the writing experience, Mm -hmm. and how the former came to inform the latter so deeply in this book. You know, the the way I conceived of the book at the beginning was this little, this girl is writing this diary, this missive that she was going to cast out into the world and it would be found by a reader. She didn't know who the reader was and I didn't know who the reader was, but it was almost as though through the act of writing, that she would somehow conjure the reader into being. Okay. When I first heard those words, her, you know, when I first got wind of, of this voice, it occurred to me that, um, that maybe I should be the reader, that Ruth should be the reader, and that really what this was about was, it was a story about, you know, a kind of a, a character coming out emerging from this Pirandellian soup and tapping a writer on the shoulder and saying, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm ready, let's go, right? And so at first I thought, well, Ruth should be the reader, should be the reader of this, of this girl's book. And I discarded that idea because it seemed too, it seemed kind of contrived and it seemed too uncomfortably postmodern and metafictional in all of the, you know, the wrong ways. And so I discarded that and I wrote four or five versions of the book with different readers in place. Okay, so I, it was like I was auditioning other characters for the role of Now's reader. From and every, a Pirandellian suit. From a Pirandellian, calling them forth, right, calling them forth. And, and they were, you know, they're kind of swirling around up there, kind of waiting, right. And each one, though, failed. Each one created a different book, right, because, of course, every time a reader stepped into place, that would change Now's narrative as well, you know, because the reader and the writer co-create each other in that sense. And so I would audition a character and then have to fire him or fire her and call the next one, you know. And this happened four or five times. So there are there are in back in the soup, you know, in this Berendellian soup, there are a lot of very disappointed characters, you know, who haven't been given the role. Finally, at it was in uh, the beginning of 2011, I had finished a draft that was at least it was done. That's all I can say about it. It was done. It was finished. I'd made it through to the end. And I was about to turn it into my editor, figuring that I couldn't go any further with it on my own. I'd really kind of reached my limit. And um, and that's when the earthquake and tsunami happened. So I remember in, in March, March 11th of 2011, I just, I, I spent... I must have spent about, you know, two or three weeks doing nothing but just watching the images of the tsunami come over. And I realized that that moment that the book that I'd written, this version of the book, was not any good. It was no longer relevant. So I withdrew it from submission, and I, once again, several months later, unzipped it and threw half of it away. And that's when I realized that I needed to, you know, go back to my very first idea and step into the role of 
Now's reader, okay, and create this Ruth character who could respond in a more authentic way to the severity of the catastrophe in Japan, who could respond to you know the events following the tsunami and the meltdown at Fukushima and all of these other these other kinds of events. But that didn't happen until I didn't discover that and and I didn't start writing that book until May of 2011. Well, in the many worlds theory yeah. of quantum <laughs> physics, there are every book you started to write was actually finished and there's another world out there where those books were completed and sold and uh, are now propagating out across the, the many worlds. And, and they're not doing very well. Just <laughs> let me point out. <laughs> well, this one I think is, has earned its kudos and deserves some. Thank you. Uh, talk a little bit about going back and forth between these two voices. Mm -hmm. You had Now's voice pretty well established. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about once you had discovered Ruth's voice mm -hmm. in the wake of this terrible mm -hmm. disaster. Mm -hmm. That must have been a, a, a kind of a hard discovery for you. Mm -hmm. Do, did you know people who were affected by this disaster? Yeah. I did. I have some friends up at the university in Sendai, in, in Tohoku. And um, so once I was able to get in touch with them, I, they, a group of materials scientists who I'd worked with at Tohoku University. So I was, I was of course, just really worried about them. But several days, maybe it was even a week after the tsunami, I was able to get in touch with them and through email. Their labs had been, you know, severely tossed. And, and they'd lost a lot of research, but they were all physically, you know, they were all okay. So that was a, that was a huge relief. And my, I have cousins and, you know, relatives in, in Tokyo and, and everyone was okay. You know, people lost things, but, you know, they, they, uh, they didn't lose their lives. You know, what was difficult personally was, you know, the, the time during and after the tsunami, feeling so far apart from it and watching all of this, you know, this literally a tidal wave of images, you know, coming from Japan uh, via the internet, you know, and just, and, and, you know, just sort of being swept up in, in all of the, you know, the stories that were coming over. And then, you know, a week later, I think it was the tornado in Joplin swept it all away. Right. And so we were on to the next thing. And then, you know, and, and I was so keenly aware of the way that that new the currents of, you know, and, and waves of, of media and story sort of wash through our consciousness, you know, through the Internet and how really how ephemeral the stories are, whereas the devastation itself, of course, is not. It's it's lasting. You at one point, one of the characters asked, what's the half life of information? Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting concept. And one of the things that you do from the very beginning, given that introduction that you read us mm -hmm. for the rest of the book, we're super conscious of time mentions in the book. Yeah. But also what happens is this seeps into our own consciousness. Mm -hmm. So I think we become more conscious and aware of time in our lives and particularly of the time we're spending reading. Mm. And this is one of the things that really interests me about this book is because to my mind, reading is a very valuable way to spend your time. And we don't have a lot of time in our lives to spend. And so I'd like you to talk about the peculiar awareness of the time you spend writing, which for I, I would assume that there's some kind of a um, you know, 
uh, 99% rule where we tip of the iceberg rule where what we see is just the yeah. tip of the iceberg and that in particular with your description of this book um, versus what comes out <laughs> as reading and also yeah. this you know the time you have to spend reading your own book yeah yeah I mean I, it, it's always amazing to me how how long it takes for me to write these books um, you know, this book has been, I've been actively working on this book since 2006, but I've been passively, you could say, working on this book since probably 1998, 1999. Certain sections of the book I can tra trace back to conversations that I had in the early, you know, 2000, 2001. So in a way, the book has been, and, and, and also to reading that I was doing in 2000, you know, the early 2000s. So, so the book has really been, you know, sort of, percolating for for quite a long time and you know and it's interesting how well one of the characters I mean Ruth in the book Ruth is reading Now's diary and at one point Ruth decides that she wants to do a, a little thought experiment and she wants to read Now's diary at the same rate and pace at which Now wrote her diary. But of course, she has no way of knowing what that rate and pace might be. So she tries to extrapolate, you know, based on changes in the handwriting or, you know, her assumptions about how, you know, the attention span of a, of a you know, of a 16-year-old girl, because it, it's important to her to somehow pace herself so that she doesn't read too quickly and therefore miss some of the experience of a life lived in real time. Right. And so, of course, this is the kind of thing that as I'm spending literally hundreds and thousands of hours writing a book that I know a reader will read in, what, a couple of hours maybe, right, or, or a couple of days anyway, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's, you know, it's a funny awareness of the way time expands and contracts, you know, and of, you know, of, of the relationship that writers and readers have to time. So. Now, uh, one of the things I, that I like so much about this book was now's voice and the way she you know describes her life and the way her story unfolds mm -hmm. and as we read her story we become acutely aware of all the other stories that are folded into her story mm -hmm. yes. and you do a lot of very interesting things giving us letters diaries um, stories within stories so I'd like you to talk mm -hmm. about now's voice and how that led you to this I mean this is a a quantum storytelling uh, mm. experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Now's voice is, is, in a way, it was sort of the guiding voice of the of the book, I think. But there are a lot of other voices that come into it, and I've always written that way. I think that I, when I look back to my early writing too, I've always used what I think of as evident, you know, evidence, you know, ev evidentiary, is that the word? Materials. So, for example, letters and faxes and phone calls and other forms of documentary evidence that then get layered in into the, the storytelling. And it's a way of uh, it, it's a it's a way of creating a montage, I suppose. If if you know if you were looking at this in filmmaking terms, it's a way of creating a montage and also a way of creating a sense of verisimilitude, even where none exists. <laughs> so, you know, just by by kind of constantly breaking out of breaking out of the the primary voices into these kinds of secondary voices, it's also the way I think I experience the world, and I think it's the way we all experience the world. You know that 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 voices are plural. 
And, you know, to my mind, if you're, if you're trying to write a novel that tells some sort of truth about, you know, our experience as time beings on Earth, then, you know, then, then you want to try to replicate that or to evoke it in some way. And so the plurality of voices is, is I think, part of an attempt to do that. In this case, there's the voices of, let me think now, there's the voice of the, the great uncle, who's a kamikaze fighter pilot who was also a scholar and a, a scholar of French philosophy and poetry in, in, 19, in the 1930s. There's the voice of a Stanford University professor. There's the voice of a psychology professor. There's the voice of Nao's father, who's a computer programmer, um, who's a deeply disturbed and suicidal man, but also very intelligent and has a very kind of interesting way of looking at the world. There's the 104-year-old great grandmother who's a Zen Buddhist nun. I'm probably missing some in there. But well, there are no, many. Yeah. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about uh, yeah. the 104-year-old grandmother Chico. Yeah. She's such a great character. Yeah. And one of the things that really interested me in this book is that there are kind of like little tidbits that mm-hmm. things that are mentioned, but that given the way you write expand for us even mm. though you don't devote a lot of page space or even necessarily mm. story space for us mm. these things like really expand and one of the things that i thought that really expanded was what you mentioned briefly the taisho democracy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is 14 years in japanese history <laughs> it seems like an eye blink especially given the scope of this book and that's an interesting thought in and of itself given yes. the nature of this book uh in which there was this kind of proto-feminist movement in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you must have had a lot of fun researching this I, I have always wanted to write more about the Taisho democracy <laughs> in Japan. Um, yes, it was a very, very short period, a real flowering of liberalism in Japan before, you know, before the forces of ultranational, you know, conservatism kicked in. And um, it was a time when women were really exploring their own voices. And it's a fascinating period. And so, yes, old Jiko, the 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 Zen Buddhist nun, you know, she's not just a Zen Buddhist nun. She's an anarchist, feminist, novelist Zen Buddhist nun. <laughs> that was her period, that she was a young woman during that period. And I loved the idea that, that you could make a gesture, you know, you could kind of gesture towards that period and evoke it and keep it alive in a way. So much of this, so much of what I was playing with in this book is uh, this notion of agnotology. Explain that. I've never heard that okay. term before. Agnotology is an interesting field of study. It's usually defined as the willful construction of ignorance. Okay, so it's, for example, what, um, you know, tobacco, big tobacco companies did, you know, through suppressing all of the scientific research linking, you know, nicotine, linking tobacco consumption to, uh, to cancer. Okay, and so it's that suppression of, and that willful construction of ignorance. But I also think of it as, for example, what very often happens in history, you know, the the sort of the holes that are left empty in history, and therefore, and, and that are in some way intentionally left empty, right, which then distort our sense of not just the past, but also the present and the future. And so if you think about women's stories, for example, you know, there are all of these women-shaped holes in our notion of, you know, in, in the fabric of our history. And that by being empty, by being left empty like that, never these stories never being recorded, of course, you know, it gives us a very skewed sense of who we were 
and therefore who we are and who we can be. And in this book, the 16-year-old girl now takes it upon herself to write the life story of her 104-year-old great-grandmother. But of course, she's 16 years old. And so she's completely swept away by the drama in her own life and never quite gets around to doing this. But there's at least a gesture towards it, you know, and there's a, there's a gesture towards a rich history that, you know, that readers can, can certainly step into and fill on their own. That was kind of a, a principle. This idea of agnotology was something that was in my mind throughout the writing of the book. We also have uh, two great characters, Ruth and Oliver. They live, <laughs> they live uh, on uh, Vancouver Island. They live. They live on a little uh, a little island in an area sandwiched in between Vancouver Island and the mainland, in an area called Desolation Sound. Talk a little <laughs> bit about creating these characters. They are a lot of fun, and I love <laughs> Oliver's project about the the Neo Eo scene. <laughs> yes, yes, that project exists. It does. It. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. um, all of Oliver's projects that are described in the book actually do exist. Oliver, at least you know, a version of Oliver exists in in real life too, just as a version of Ruth exists in real life too, and is in fact sitting here and talking to you. The characters of Ruth and Oliver were really, they're patently autobiographical. I'm not making any, you know, there's no kind of like wink, wink here. You know, mm -hmm. these are these are characters who, you know, who, who share our names and who share, uh, you know, the, the general shape of, of you know, of, of my life and Oliver's life in what we call reality. But they live within a fictional universe, right? Mm -hmm. They live in the fictional universe of the book. And so, of course, they're a limited version. They're, they're one facet of um, who, uh, you know, who I am, who Oliver is. Ruth and Oliver in the book have a cat, okay? Ruth and Oliver in real life have a cat. Ruth and Oliver's cat in the book is named Schrodinger. Right. Um, Ruth and Oliver's cat in real life is not named Schrodinger. And, you know, I made this decision to protect, you know, to change the cat's identity and to change the cat's name in order to protect his identity. So, you know, so there's there's differences. There are differences. Ruth in the book finds a diary washed up on the beach. You know, Ruth in real life never found a diary washed up on a beach, but she did hear the voice of a character in her mind and obsessively set out in search of that character. So the, I'd say that the two worlds are parallel, but they're not the same. <laughs> well, that's interesting yeah. given uh, some of the, uh, the uh, ask what happens to the diary as, yes. as time goes yes, by. Yes, exactly. Uh, so um, when you were writing the Ruth and mm. Oliver parts, uh, um, did you write all of now, you had already had Now's whole narrative for the most part, or did did when you brought Ruth and Oliver finally back in, did they um, uh, force some changes into Now's absolutely, story? Absolutely, absolutely, because every reader changes the text, right? There's no way, you know. Reading is a creative act. Reading is a collaboration uh -huh. with a writer, right? And it's a collaboration that takes place across time, but it, it is, you know, the book that you read is going to be completely different from the book that you know, that somebody else reads. Mm -hmm. um, so, so of course, when Ruth steps in as the, you know, the reader of Now's diary, then she's going to change Now's life. Now's life is not going to be the same if, you know, as it would have been had somebody else been in that, in that role as a reader. So although I knew the general, I knew the general arc and the general shape of Now's of Now's life and the events in her life, I knew that, you know, I had to be completely open to the, this idea that when Ruth stepped in, you know, that that would change things 
you know, that that might change things completely, you know. Um, and in fact, it did. It changed it radically. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting. <laughs> I, I really love the idea of, you know, the one of the things that occurs when you read this book is it's just pings around in your brain. Um, and as you read it, you think about, yes, I'm reading a book. Here's this voice that's ringing in my head. Is this my voice? No, this is somebody else talking to me. Yes. I'm creating this experience. Yes. And I think this whole discussion that the reader has with themselves as they read this book yes. is a really important and a really unique part of this yes. reading experience of this book. Yes. I, I think so. And I'm, it's very, very gratifying to hear you say that because that is... Um, one of the things that's always excited me about certain kinds of books, when it starts to resonate and reverberate on multiple levels at once. And I think that, and, and so there's a, a kind of a, almost a recursive quality to the reading experience. I, I was always, when I was a little girl, was always fascinated by the Morton Salt girl. You know, the, the picture of the, on the Morton Salt container of the uh, yeah. little girl holding a Morton Salt container with a picture of the little girl holding a Morton Salt container with a picture of the, et cetera, right? And that was always something that the, the sort of recursive and self-referential element to that picture or that kind of narrative structure is something that's always really excited me. And, and that's, I think, what's starting to happen in this book. And, and uh, so it's, it's, it's great to hear you say that. Well, there are some moments in here that have to do just with being a reader of the book and being addressed as a reader of the book mm -hmm. that are, I think, truly thrilling, as mm -hmm. thrilling as any aspect of any <laughs> chase scene or, or <laughs> right. murder reveal or any kind of uh, yeah. reveal in any yeah. book I've read. Yeah. And I, I really think that the uniqueness of that mm -hmm. is, is one of the, the great thrills of reading this book. There's a lot of really interesting stuff within the book, though, within the story. I mean, now's story of uh, her, re she's brought up um, in America mm -hmm. for her early years and, until her family goes back to Japan. But the story of her in Japan, that's a really tragic and very mm -hmm. intense and sometimes kind of difficult to mm -hmm. read story. These Japanese schoolgirls, they, it's it's. Uh, vicious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the the kind of bullying that goes on, you know, now is, is, is subject to very intense bullying that to our uh, Western eye seems, you know, seems strange and, you know, very, very disturbing. And it is disturbing. There's no question about it. You know, I think that every culture has its own, you know, peculiar and particular way of both being of being violent, of being, but also being beautiful. I mean, there's, there's certain, you know, when I think about, put it this way, when I think about the bullying cases that are in the media in America right now, you know, girl, a girl being dragged unconscious from party to party and, you know, raped and videotaped and, you know, this kind of thing. When I think about that, and then I compare that to the kind of bullying that, that, you know, goes on in the novel, I actually, the U.S. version of, of bullying that we're seeing, not just bullying, but torture, is very, very disturbing to me. Bullying itself is, I think, you know, it's, it's a... It's a, it, it's a theme in the novel. It's a theme in the no novel, and, and it's something that I was very aware of. People were starting to talk about it in Japan, maybe... Oh, I don't know. I think I, I certainly started to become aware of it about a decade, maybe 15 years ago, and I started tracking stories and reading about them. And I've also noticed that when 
over the years, I've been going back and forth between Japan and America, and I've noticed that when things start being talked about in Japan, usually they will start to surface in America, you know, 10 years later, five years later. Actually, the cycle of it, you know, the cycle seemed to be growing shorter and shorter. So when I started reading about this kind of thing in Japan, I started wondering whether this, in fact, would start to become an issue in the U.S. as well, and it has. So I'm not surprised it's something that, in a way, I, I kind of predicted. You know, so, so writing about bullying in Japan seemed to me to be something that would be, you know, timely and important to do. So. Well, one of the things you say, too, and I, I, you, when you point this out, it's kind of an aside, but as you realize it, is that bullying is endemic in our culture. Mm-hmm. You think of Wayne LaPierre standing up there shouting at people, yeah. that's bullying. It's when you, bullying. Yeah. When you think of the way that our political culture exactly. is, it's a, it's a, politics is a culture of bullying. It is. And, and our corporate culture is bullying as well. Exactly. And this was something, this is a point I think that is, you know, is made in the book. You know, and, and I wrote, you know, I wrote a lot of this book. This book started, you know, during, I, I started writing it during the Bush administration. You know, so it was it was it was a book that was you know my concern about living in a bully culture came from you know the the political culture that I felt was you know was 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 gaining power around me, and um, and I found it very disturbing. It, it makes its point beautifully, but subtly, and that's mm-hmm. yeah. important. Uh, talk a little bit about um, the. Uh, character uh, of Now's father. Mm. Um, he's a very interesting figure, and I love the the transformation. The, yeah. His character arc is really superb, and and one of the most rewarding yeah. experiences of reading this book. Um, but he starts out as being a very a kind of a scary fellow. At the beginning, when we first encounter him, we don't know much about him, and. We only know what now tells us about him. So we only see a very limited portrait of him. So really, I think his story is... I, I'm always fascinated by how little children know about their parents. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, that's true. And, and this, this really was a story about now who knew so little about her father. And and a lo- largely because he kept you know he kept information from her in order to protect her, but also because she was just too young to understand the kinds of decisions and the kinds of challenges that he was up against. And so the story is a slow reveal of the kinds of really serious moral and ethical dilemmas that this man is trying to sort through and understand in his own life. By the end of the book. Both characters have have learned enough, you know, and have grown enough to be able to have a significant, you know, understanding of each other at the end, whereas that would have been impossible at the beginning. One of the themes that in this book, and it's a rather frightening theme, is suicide. Yeah. And we see it from a variety of angles, from the suicide bombers in, in World War II, Haruki Number 1, and her, her great uncle, through her father and and her own intentions, as stated, uh, pretty much from the get go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk about exploring this and mm-hmm. the culture of the Hirikimon. I, I'm yeah. trying. I'm not saying the word wrong. It's the the, the men who stay home. <laughs> oh, hikikomori, pretend. hikikomori. Yes, yeah, hikikomori. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, 
the you know once again these were these were kind of cultural trends or stories that I have been reading about in the Japanese media Japanese stories for the last couple of decades and I've been increasingly aware of suicide trends in Japan certainly amongst middle-aged men that's one demographic and that of course coincides with the economic downturn the post bubble economy in Japan also though amongst you know young teenagers really pretty shocking suicide trends amongst young teenagers and so and there have been lots of movies made about this some of them actually kind of glorifying suicide there was a very very popular bestseller can't remember the name of it now written in Japan on how to how to suicide how to how to kill yourself and you know with with a very kind of clinical breakdown and analysis of of the various ways in which you know you could accomplish this and so i've been i've been watching all of this unfold over the the last couple of decades and it once again seemed to me to be yeah you know, i've been curious about it like why is suicide such an you know why does it appear to be such an obsession in japan you know how does how do japanese attitudes towards suicide differ from our judeo christian attitudes so this this is all i think stuff that has kind of filtered into the book in various kinds of ways. The hikikomori is another trend which has been growing in Japan which are people who 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 really retreat from the world and refuse to leave their rooms. So this is another phenomenon that has become prevalent in Japan in the past decade. So these are trends once again that I look at and I am interested in and I wonder too how much of this will cycle around and turn up on our shores as well. Well, I think one of the things that um they all these things do is they weave different stories through the book. Mm -hmm. I love your sense of story in this book. Mm -hmm. It's really really interesting because this is a tense, a very intense book to read, mm -hmm. and you actually allude to that mm -hmm. towards the end of the book, where one of the characters <laughs> says she just would have read the whole thing straight through and just, you know, turned to the end to find out what happens. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And yeah. I think that your sense of yeah. how to tell a story that, because on one hand, you want us, you keep our attention mm -hmm. riveted on every page, but I get the sense that you don't want us to read this book too fast mm -hmm. that we're meant to experience this book at a somewhat measured pace mm -hmm. and I, that has to do too with the theme of zen buddhism that runs <laughs> through this book so talk a little yeah. bit about your experience as a zen buddhist priest and yeah. you know the what it feels like to write about that in this kind of i'd say fairly radical fiction mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know the book I think if there was one inspiration for the book, it was Zen practice. And I know that sounds a little strange <laughs> given all of the other things that are in the book, but you know, the, the whole notion of a time being is something that comes from the writings of a 13th century Zen master named Dogen Zenji. And he wrote a, a fascicle, an essay called, in Japanese called Uji. And Uji is, can be translated as either time being or being time or for the time being. And I was reading and studying this fascicle in the years, you know, before I started writing the book. And this idea that, you know, that a cliche, like for the time being, you know, this a, a quick cliche could actually, if you slow it down, right, and if you accent it differently, you know, for the time being, you know, it could mean something completely different, right? And, and this idea that, that this phrase, time being, 
could be unpacked in so many different ways really intrigued me. And so I think that was really the impetus for the book. And in that, a kind of an exploration of what it means to be a being in time, what it means for the characters, but also what it means for a writer, what it means for readers. And so, yes, I think there was very much a consciousness as I was writing it that you know, that, that this book could be read on many different levels, that it could be read almost as a kind of a performance of philosophy. I like that. Yeah, performance right. philosophy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, not it's not an analysis of philosophy. No, you know, no, it's but more it's a entertaining. It's a performance of it. It's, mm -hmm. it's an embodiment of it, I suppose, mm -hmm. you know, in that sense. You know, I was on Goodreads and, and looking at, at some of readers' comments, and many readers have said that they find themselves slowing down you know, and wanting to slow down, like doing everything that they can in order to slow down so that they can take it in more deeply. And other readers saying that, you know, that they race through to the end, but that they started reading it immediately again because they knew that by racing through that they'd miss things and they wanted to do it again, you know. So, so that's really pleasing to me, of course, because, you know, that, that's been very much my experience of the writing of it as well, that it's a kind of a, you know, that I, I loop back, you know, I loop back and spend time sitting with the various scenes and so that's how that's how they were written it makes me very happy to see that that's how they're being read as well well it was so interesting yeah. to hear you read the beginning having uh, finished the book mm -hmm. uh it really i i you know i have a completely different perspective on the beginning yeah. and you can just it is a book that could be easily reread because mm -hmm. by the time you get to the end the the meaning of everything yes. that has come before it has been completely altered. Yes, yes, that's and right. And that's a very interesting strategy. Was that something you planned on or just discovered? That just happened. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I wish I could say that I could plan that far in advance and, and, you know, and actually execute, you know, the plans that I had. But no, that was serendipity. <laughs> I have to ask because there's so many different references to time, and and one of the things that interests me that. As you're reading the book, this book has footnotes mm -hmm. and that kind of, again, take us out of the time stream of the book. That's right. And they say, uh, what interested me too was you um, will, uh, the Ruth mm -hmm. will occasionally use a Japanese word mm -hmm. and then star it and footnote it and say, this means this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, but that word choice seems kind of, you know, arbitrary. Mm. And so I'm wondering, as you as a writer, how much of that you pulled out and said, okay, I really love the, the, the Japanese word and the way it translates to be this plus this. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. how much of that just, you know, kind of flowed off the tip of your pen? Mm -hmm. The whole footnoting apparatus was interesting because, yes, as you mentioned, it, it's a way of creating another layer, another layer of reading, another layer of meaning. The idea, of course, is that character Ruth is reading and footnoting the Now's diary. Okay, So Now will, might use a Japanese word or a Japanese expression, and the character of Ruth um, who's a bit of a nerd and, you know, a bit of a, you know, a kind of a failed academic and, you know, um, goes in and annotates Now's text. Okay. But then at some point, too, 
you know, you notice that Ruth's sections of the book actually become annotated as well. So the question is, who's performing those annotations, right? <laughs> who's intervening in the text at this point, right? If the character of Ruth, I mean, you know. And so, of course, then it, it, it brings you out, a you know, another layer. And, you know, it's, it's the author, Ruth, who's annotating character Ruth's, you know. Um, and, and so once again, it's this kind of recursive relationship between identity, fictional identity and real identity and, and all of the, the, the different ways that we perceive reality, right? The footnoting itself, I think it started out as just as a simple solution to a, a simple problem, which is that now had certain... You know, she, she just had a way of talking and a way of combining Japanese and English. She never thought about explaining things to her reader. She just kind of assumed that her reader would know. And so, you know, this posed a problem because somehow, you know, the reader needed a guide to help interpret some of Nao's Japanese slang and various other kinds of things. That's where the footnoting apparatus, that's, that's why I started to use that. But, you know, it, it, I, I realized partway through that it was serving this other purpose as well and was really happy with that. Well, yeah. one of the things, too, here's a book all about time, and we, you know, give us references to appendices. Mm -hmm. There are several appendices at the end of the book mm -hmm. that deal with quantum theory and Schrodinger's cat and <laughs> Everett and his many worlds theory, which are really lovely to read. Yeah. Um, but the effect is you're taking us into the future of the book. You're going beyond the end. We're going outside the scope of time of the book. Yes. And that's a really interesting effect yes. that we think about because the book is so much involved with time. Yes, yes. And I think that's one of the, it, it's something that I tried to do, and I remember in, in my year of meets as well, I think maybe I've tried to do that in all three books. The idea that the book somehow looks beyond its own ending and casts forward into an unimaginable future. So that even while narrative issues, you know, narrative issues are kind of wrapped up, the ideas or the thrust of the book goes beyond itself. Right. And that's something that I've always been, you know, intrigued by. And, you know, honestly, I mean, Shakespeare does that routinely, right? When characters turn and address the audience. Sure. Know. Pardon? Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and so it's it's something that I think on some level, I kind of, it's an homage to, you know, to that kind of storytelling where, you know, you can say, yes, you know, the play is over and uh, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> One of the most interesting aspects of this book, for me at least, are the elements of the fantastic and the way they kind of creep into the narrative yeah. and they emerge forth from the narrative. There's a point where the letters get all big and I think, wow, we're taking a break from reality here. We're headed into another reality and that's yeah. uh, literally what's happening. So I'd like you to talk about some of the technological uh, mm. speculation you make with regards to the web and mm. quantum computing. What I got interested in was this idea of using the ideas in quantum computing to actually alter the past on the internet, right? And so mm -hmm. this idea of, once again, it goes back to this, uh, you know, to, to the discussion of agnotology. And, you know, can you, re can you create that retroactively, right? Can you go back in and you know selectively erase parts of the you know the, of history. the of history of the record yeah using quantum computing and so without getting too much you know too too deeply into it because i don't want to kind of give it away this becomes a, a kind of a, a speculation and it's one that grows out though of the you know it, it's sort of along the same lines as you know this idea of what happens to women's histories 
you know, mm-hmm. women's histories being left out of left out of the historical record. But then, of course, you can too then speculate that you know that it could be replaced. I mean, what you're suggesting is that those the holes in the in the historical record could then be created too. Sure, right? yeah. yeah. This yeah, uh, yeah. the the old. Yeah. Uh, a Borges, Borges, yes, Borges right, story, exactly. Talan Akbar, Tarsius That's Orbitus. right, that's yeah, right, just, that's right. That's need, right. We don't need a, yeah. a new government. We just need a new encyclopedia. Right, exactly. Or Orwell, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's it's Orwellian, you know, it's what, it's what uh, you know, Winston Smith, that was his job, right? To, sure. To, you know, to recreate and, and you know, fill the pockets. <laughs> uh, I, I love the, there's a lot of uh, search engine action that goes on in this book, <laughs> and it really is a kind of a zen of search, so... Mm. I'm imagining this is something you spend quite a bit of time doing. I spend way too much time doing it. Yes, I do. I spend way too much time doing it. But, you know, when you're living on a remote island in Desolation Sound, the Internet is your connection. It's a portal to the world. So I do end up spending a lot of time poking around on the Internet, and my husband is is constantly sending me stuff. And, in fact, I think it was a it was an article that he sent me by Rivka Galchin in The New Yorker about quantum computing that, you know, sort of set me off on this whole long, you know, exploration of Hugh Everett and many worlds. And in fact, it led to the conclusion of one of the strands, you know, the stories in the in the book. So, well, that's one of the yeah. things I really love is the way that this book um, kind of is transformed by retroactive uh, tweezing <laughs> <laughs> from what yes. looks to be a, yeah. a pretty much straightforward yeah. uh, literary mainstream novel into a, a fairly weird science fiction novel. Yes, well, you know, and I thought, too, that why not? You know, I mean, if I'm in the... I, I, I was so tempted to do that because I knew that, that people would read this literally, you know, that, mm. that people would read the... You know, if, if, if there's a character named Ruth who's married to a character named Oliver and these names correspond to the people in real life, you know, the, the author and, and her husband and... You know that that there was going to be a real strong temptation to read this book literally as autobiographical and true and real, right? And so as soon as I see something like that happening, which would be dreadful, right? I wanted to break that, and so to have magical realist moments popping up in what appears to be a realist text, you know, was interesting to me. <laughs> well, I love the ghosts too. Yeah. I mean, the, the ghosts are are really well handled, and I think. Uh, beautifully uh, rendered elements of the fantastic that are, it's a different feel, but equally realistic. And you have, what's nice is that we have now become a living ghost, Mm -hmm. which makes it easier for her to talk to the dead ones. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, the, the, the ghosts, Japanese ghosts are wonderful. It's wonderful to Google image, you know, if you use Google images and just type in Japanese ghosts or Japanese folklore, they're just some of the most wonderful ghosts that, you know, populate the Japanese folklore imagination. And I had been to, I'd just been to Japan traveling around visiting Zen temples on a kind of a a pilgrimage in 2010. And one of the things that I was reminded of is how much Zen Japanese Zen Buddhism is a religion of ancestor worship, ancestor veneration, and how so much of what we do in Zen is about taking care of, you know, taking care of the ancestors, taking care of the ancestors' names, the graves, you know, the the teachings. It's a sense of lineage, and in that sense, really a veneration of time, right? Looking at time not just within the, the short period of a single human lifetime, but over, you know, these long expanses of time. 
when we are ordained in my lineage, we receive something called a kechimyaku, which is a bloodline, which will trace our Zen, our Buddhist ancestry, all the way back to Shakyamuni Buddha, right? With each, so it's, it's literally a lineage paper that you receive. And so this kind of blows your mind in terms of what it means to be a time being. Well, I love that sense. That's one of the things in this book that I love is the sense of deep time. Yes. In America, we don't have that. Country's only 200 years old. Everything around you is pretty new. And if it isn't, it's been, it's going to get rebuilt over us pretty soon. And this book really creates that sense of deep time. And I think that's very important to understand as part of our lives, but also as part of this book. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things I think that I was very, very you know, I was just, I was fascinated with that, and I really wanted to try to achieve that in the book. I, you must be familiar with Long Now Foundation. Yeah. 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 So I, I, you know, am a, am a fan of the Long Now Foundation, <laughs> and, and um, you know, and I, I uh, think it's very important for, for us to understand that we are time beings with a time limit, you know, and that, but that our time limit is very different from, you know, from that of other beings, other time beings on Earth. So, you know, it's good to mix it up. It's good to try to understand that time can be different things to different people or different beings. Oh, I've just had a lovely time speaking <laughs> with you. I've been speaking with Ruth Ozeki about her new book, A Tale for the Time Being. Thank you for joining me, Ruth. Thank you so much, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.